This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Okay, um, now that they've closed the doors on us and locked us in, uh, I take it that's a sign that we ought to begin. Uh, my name is Tom Heller. I'm a professor at the law school and work with David. Uh, whom we've just been privileged to hear at, at, at the program in Energy and Sustainable Development. And um, we're going to uh, discuss for the, the coming hour basically two questions, uh, each one small in its own right. Where are global energy markets going and uh, how, what is China's growth path? And uh, we'll get that done pretty quickly. And um, but really the purpose of this is to, is to have a chance to, to interact with you and to give you a chance to, to ask questions, make comments. Um, so we're going to keep our own presentations uh, absolutely short and introductory. And, um, and, and, and I'll begin that. But let me first introduce the, the, the two gentlemen who are um, up here at the, uh, on, at the table with me. I'm very grateful to each of them for, uh, for joining us. Um, Fred, who, because he came a, a very long way uh, to, to, to be with us, and, um, and Edgar Habib, who came a shorter distance, but in a much, um, a much shorter time frame, responded to me uh, just, just this week, and uh, for someone of his stature and, 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 and the schedule that he carries, the willingness to come over here at short notice is, uh, is, is deeply appreciated. So um, a word about each um, to begin, and then, um, and then I'll, I'll set the stage a little bit. Um, Fred Yu is the managing director at, at Goldman Sachs um, Asia. Uh, he works out of both Hong Kong and, and, and Beijing. His background is that he was born in the PRC in South China, um, but made what is actually a, uh, a long and, uh, <coughs> and, and relatively difficult migration up to, to Beijing to Tsinghua University. Uh, certainly, the uh, the leading uh, technology uh, in university in in, in China, um, where he did his MS in engineering, and then he got a, an MA and a, a PhD at at, at Harvard. Um, Fred has been uh, I've I've known him for some time. He works back and forth, as I said. He's been extremely active uh, adv advising the uh, the Chinese government in a variety of areas. He has been tremendously influential in building up uh, a social science and a management faculty at, at Tsinghua that has really risen to, uh, to, to global standards. Um, he joined Goldman Sachs uh, in 1997. Before that, he was with the International Monetary Fund. And uh, he has a distinguished record of publication. Uh, I know in my own work in China over the, the last years, uh, where I invariably need uh, tutelage and, and explanation. Uh, there are a number of times I've turned to Fred, and there is no better source. Um, Edgar Habib um, is uh, a native of, 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 of Lebanon. Uh, he received his bachelor's degree in this area um, at, um, at the University of San Francisco, went on to do an MA and a, 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 in, and a, a PhD in economics at American University in, in, in Washington. Uh, he worked for a considerable time for one of the leading um, energy uh, analysis firms in the world, the Warden Econ uh, Econometric uh, Forecasting Associate, where um, he was uh, at, at, at senior vice president and managing <coughs> director, 
with responsibilities for analyzing uh, the global markets. Uh, he has been a senior advisor at, at, at Mitsubishi, uh, focusing on issues of, uh, of uh, energy security, country risk issues, long-term prognostication. Um, he went in 1997 to the International Energy Agency in Paris, um, where he uh, worked. It's a branch of the OECD that does some of the most important studies of, of the state of global markets uh, at, at, uh, in, 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 uh, annually. Um, and he managed their Middle East and African affairs. In 2000, he joined Chevron and as chief economist, and after the merger, uh, remained as, has remained as the chief economist at, at, at Chevron Texaco. So uh, once again, we're extremely fortunate to have people uh, with, with this level of expertise and, and scope um, with us. Uh, just a couple words of introduction um, about uh, my, some of my own uh, sense of the problems that, that we're going to be discussing today. Um, Secretary Schultz said this morning, he started off his remarks by saying, uh, look, uh, the world is, is, has, is in a point of tremendous opportunities. Things have advanced enormously. And in the, in the 10 years that I've been uh, lucky enough to be working with some regularity in China, um, the, the optimistic side of what has generally been a pessimistic day uh, cannot, be, uh, cannot be put to the side. Uh, just in area after area that we have studied or that I've had a chance to see personally, um, the, the growth rates in China have been unbelievable. And growth rates translate into a lot of people uh, like us having an opportunity to have a much better life uh, than their parents did, and very importantly, a very deep hope that their children are going to have much better lives than they do. And since I work a lot in Africa and Latin America and other places uh, where those, uh, that, that can't be replicated, there is something extremely exciting about uh, uh, being in China. It's got most of the world's electrification of people so that they have access to electricity. Most of the figures are what has occurred in China. Um, as David mentioned earlier, they're building uh, energy. They're building uh, power plants at a rate that's equivalent fairly close to an England every year. Uh, that's unbelievable in terms of the scale. Um, they are not consuming the, the energy, uh, the, the oil they're consuming. I, the latest figures I saw in September were about 3.29 million barrels a day. That compares, say, with Japan, which is at 5 million barrels a day. But the growth has been uh, has been substantial, and um, and in many people who are who are worried about international markets, you see Chinese companies like China National Petroleum Company or Sinopec, or uh, or, or the China National Offshore Oil Company to a to a smaller degree, uh, extremely active in global markets, not simply remaining in China with their activities anymore, but being active in Africa and in in, in Kazakhstan and. Uh, many other parts of the world. Having said all that, there are mysteries that I continue to, um, to, to wonder about. I, I teach a class about investing in countries where the law doesn't work. Okay, it sounds like a strange class. We do case studies. A lot of them are in China, but there are other places as well. And uh, the reason it's a mystery is the standard story that we have uh, through, through, through the World Bank, through, through many, many academics, is that in order to have a country grow at high rates, 
you have to have a firm institutional base. You have to have good judges, an independent legal system, and also a good regulatory system. But I, it's pretty hard, having spent 10 years in China, to, to put those two stories together. The fastest growth in the world doesn't seem to correlate easily with, with very substantial institutional performance or quality. And in our own work in, in the program in energy and sustainable uh, development, where we do quite a bit on, on Chinese markets and what's going on on the ground, uh, these are not smoothly functioning competitive markets. They are highly political with interesting players in them um, that, uh, that, that, that have all kinds of attributes that we often don't associate with China. Um, some of the most interesting to me are the fact that while we tend to think of China as a relatively monolithic structure in which you have a central government whose will can be uh, exercised around the country, um, don't see a lot of that. You see a great deal of fragmentation, a great deal of differentiation by region, and perhaps Fred will, will help us with that. The other point that I simply will make in closing on my introductory remarks um, are that we also do a lot of work in PEST on, on climate issues. And um, as, as, again, echoing the Secretary's remarks, Secretary Schultz's remarks this morning, um, China poses an enormously interesting problem and challenge. Uh, the growth of energy is, is very substantially in coal. Uh, it is in coal that is, uh, is, is relatively traditional at this point in, in the technologies through which it is, uh, it, it is being uh, uh, turned into, into electricity. Um, that has consequences for, for the climate that, according to some estimates, no one is ever really sure. Uh, but according to some estimates, will lead China to surpass the United States as the leading emitter of, of carbon dioxide emissions uh, uh, sometime in the next decade. Um, that means that, uh, that, that there is a major issue here, and yet I am absolutely persuaded that regulatory approaches such as those in the Kyoto Protocol, whatever their fate may be in the United States, have no possibility of taking hold in China. Um, so we have to, as Secretary Schultz suggested, turn to other approaches, approaches that are probably much more compatible with business opportunities, with uh, developmental goals uh, to which energy is absolutely essential, but which hopefully can lead to, uh, to cooperative rather than, uh, than um, mandatory solutions to, to what is obviously an increasing uh, challenge to, to both the Chinese and, and to ourselves. So with those remarks, putting a bunch of different things on the table from energy security to, to, to environment to development, um, let me turn first to, to, to Fred and, uh, and ask him to make some intro introductory remarks about the Chinese economy. Thank you very much, Tom. I'm uh, glad to be here. Um, you know, to um, have really kind of the interactive discussion with this um, you know, room of um, distinguished participants, I decided to eschew uh, uh, prepared uh, slides um, instead of just really give you some kind of informal um, rough sketch about what's happening in the Chinese economy. Uh, the rise of China as um, a global economic power is perhaps um, the single uh, most um, remarkable event uh, for the world economy, uh, certainly in the 21st century. Um, you know, for over two decades, China has been the fastest growing uh, major economy Last three years, consistently, 
real GDP growth has been um, above 10%, uh, despite a range of uh, policy tightening measures aimed at cooling off the economy. Uh, next year, we uh, anticipate the uh, economy will still grow just a touch below 10%, about 9.7%, uh, still, uh, like to put China as, as the fastest growing uh, major economy uh, easily. Fast growth, of course, has uh, enabled China to uh, catch up uh, very quickly and even overtake. Uh, in 1995, you know, the economy in China was um, actually about half of the size of the Canadian GDP and uh, actually smaller than three quarters of the Italian GDP. By uh, year 2005, however, you know, China had already uh, you know, overtaken many of the uh, members of the G7, circle G7 club, become the fourth largest uh, economy. And this is based on conventional market exchange rate, okay? uh, which I already know, you know, uh, California, you just elect, send uh, your congresswoman Nancy Pelosi become the uh, first female speaker of the House. And uh, she has been long critical of China's uh, so-called undervalued currency. So if she were right, then the Chinese economy could be easily uh, twice or three times larger than the uh, official uh, estimate, uh, or according to what we call PPP, Pitching's Power Parity in economics, uh, China could be, I think Nick Hope, uh, you know, former World Bank senior official uh, in charge of China, you know, probably would agree. If we use the PPP, then the economy would have, you know, been probably second largest, uh, just, just behind the uh, United States. The fast growth in China, of course, is not something like a controlled experiment that we can watch you know, in, a, in a lab. Uh, what's going on there already has very sizable Im impact in the rest of the world on trade flows, certainly, on investment flows, on currencies, interest rates, you know, equities, and, of course, on the commodity prices. I had a slide, but I couldn't show you, so I'm show this uh, in a graph for those uh, who have good vision. You might see this, uh, you know. This um, solid black line is what we call uh, Goldman Sachs China Activity Index, so GSCA, which is kind of like an uh, index we have combined to track uh, economic activity, which we believe is better than or superior to the official estimate. Um, and then the dotted line is called the GSCI. That's Goldman Sachs Commodity Index. Uh, you know, we, some of you know, we, you know Goldman Sachs is a major global commodities trader, uh, and we have this index. So this striking uh, close correlation between the two. Okay, so this is a, this GSCI is a very broad index, including like metal, you know, anomina, copper, but also you know energy. Um, so you know this uh, this clearly very significant uh, impact uh, going on already. Now, in order to understand what's happening in China and also to have a sense what may happen, you know, in the years ahead, uh, let me just point uh, out a number of um, key trends. First, industrialization. You know, for those of you who may have interest in, uh, you know, Chinese uh, classic painting, you know, the landscape scroll. Uh, the image of China is typically presented as, um, you know, barefooted uh, peasants uh, guiding the buffalo in a rice paddy. 
you know, against the distant, misty green you know, bamboo hills. Okay, very typical, uh, you know, the favorite subject of Chinese classical painters. So that's very picturesque, but uh, very detached from reality today. T today, the Chinese economy is driven far more by industry than by agriculture. Manufacture output as a percent of GDP is 55%. That's actually higher than the ratio in both Japan and United States, two of the leading industrial economies. Okay, 55% much higher than either in Japan, which is about 40%. In the US, it's way below 40%. Of course, US is now its most service economy or post-industrial society, if you will. Um, so from textiles, apparel, you know, footwear, this is a perennial source of trade dispute between China and the European Union or China and the US. You know, China is already the leading, probably the dominant manufacturer and exporter. Not just textiles, footwear, but toys. 80% of the toys produced in China. Consumer electronics, China now is the largest TV producer, DVD producer, resale producer, and increasingly phones, mobile phones and fixed line phones. Um, and also increasingly automobile, okay? So China is already pretty uh, formidable industrial power, but there's still a long way to go. China is still at the early stage of industrialization. Take steel as an example. I'm not, I was going to use the energy, coal, or, uh, or petrochemical as an example, but now since we have so many world-foremost energy experts, you know, Tom, David, and uh, Mr. Harvey here, let me just use a steel example instead. In 1995, China uh, was produced like um, 98 million metric ton in steel. Just behind Japan, Japan was number one, the biggest steel, steel producer in the world, just over 100 million metric tons. That was 1995. A decade later, by last year, China produced 350 million metric tons. So that's kind of average annual growth of 14%. Whereas in Japan, it's about like a, you know, 105 million metric ton. So it's barely changed from where it was uh, in 1995. Okay, so China now, as the largest steel producer in the world, produce more than three times steel than the second largest producer, which is steel Japan, by the way. Now, you might think, you know, actually, in fact, lately in the financial markets, there's been talk of, you know, steel glut, you know, capacity in China, or the prospect of China as a steel per exporter, okay? <laughs> now, the fact is still there's a long way to go. Look at the steel consumption per capita, 200 kilograms. I don't know what's how many pounds, okay? But 200 kilograms per capita in China. That's still barely half what's been consumed in the U.S. And of course, the U.S. is already very, very developed industrial economy, okay? What China has now is way below half the consumption level in the U.S. It's way below one-third of level consumption in Japan. It's below one-quarter in Taiwan. It's below 
even one-fifth in South Korea. So China is already the largest steel producer in the world. 350 million metric tons in 2005, over one-third of global steel output. But even to reach the, mid, the mean level of steel consumption in a typically industrialized economy, from US to, say, South Korea, you know, China needs to probably triple the total steel production okay, within the next 10 years. So this gives you some idea of the, the process of industrialization. Also, of course, you could understand through this example, understand this China's voracious appetite for commodity, like iron ore, for coal, for energy, you know, fossil energy, uh, natural gas, and, um, and crude oil. As China industrialized, the, the country's demographics has also been undergoing very dramatic shift. I'm talking about urbanization. Across the country, tens of millions of people are on the move every year, out of villages into towns and the cities, out of agriculture into manufacturing services. Particularly since mid-1990s, when the government started to relax draconian control over rural urban migration, we have seen very dramatic increase in urbanization. So from 26% of total now to about 40% urbanization ratio, that translates into net increase in urban population of 200 million. So over the last 10 years, every year, China added an equivalent of Australia to its urban population, <coughs> which is really a tremendous driving force for infrastructure spending. That's like I think what when all those visits Tom had to China, you see infrastructure, highways, railways, container ports, airports across the country. That's also what's driving housing boom, you know, again, across the country, from Shenzhen to Harbin in northeastern China. Of course, that's also driving the consumption boom. Okay, with this um, mobile phones, PCs, internet, to increasingly, yes, automobile. You know, within five years, China from probably distant ninth uh, largest automobile market now to the third largest, just overtaking Germany. So again, think about the energy as our theme of this conference. You know, one, you know, tens of millions of Chinese you know, for the American way of life, you know, to put the country on the wheel, <laughs> the demand for energy, for, for everything else. Um, again, even at 40%, you know, China still, it's important to re realize China still at the early, kind of at the low end of the urbanization, even for economies at the comparable stage of development. So still there's a long way to go. Uh, as the government strategy to develop uh, further infrastructure and also the second tier cities in the inland provinces and in western part of the country, urbanization will continue at a very accelerated pace. I project within the next 10 years uh, will be another 250 million people uh, joining the ranks of um, urban uh, consumers. So that will raise the urbanization ratio uh, to 55%, okay? This is very likely to happen. 
in industrialized region like Perera Delta and Yangzhou Delta, we have always seen kind of shortage of labor in certain segments. So whereas in countryside, particularly in the inland and the western provinces, there's still chronic, persistent underemployment. So because both pull and push, okay, so people will continue to move out of rural areas into, into the cities and towns. We'll just put the, look at the same issue in another way. Agriculture today accounts for less than 15% of China's GDP, okay, in terms of value added. But agriculture still employs over 50% of the total labor force. So the government now, the current leadership, President Hu and the Premier Wen, are very concerned about rural income divide, rural urban income divide. So unless you know, urbanization continues at accelerated pace, there's no way China could deal with this uh, urban income disparity. So the only way to lift poverty is to get more people out of agriculture, which accounts for shrinking share of the economic pie, but still imports a lot, more than half of the China's labor force. So this will, urbanization will, will continue. Let's, again, if you want to understand the impact of China on the rest of the world, you know, that's this urbanization together with the industrialization, you know, will be the two most powerful uh, forces. At the same time, China is also uh, globalizing very quickly. If you look at the trade GDP ratio, this is our econ economist measure of uh, degree of openness. Imperfect, to be sure, but still it's good measure. If you look at the trade GDP, China now is 70%. That's for economy with more than one trillion US dollar, a large economy, that's extraordinarily high uh, ratio. Or in other words, Chinese economy is, is extremely uh, open for trade and for uh, investment. So that also explains why what's happening in China you know, it's just so keenly failed throughout the world. <coughs> even in our political life in this country, even midterm election, I mean, post-midterm election, I'm sure China may, in some, you know, rival Iraq as the, uh, you know, uh, political uh, headlines uh, in, the, in the coming uh, year or so because of this bilateral trade imbalance. This year, expected 250 billion US dollars or like manufacturing job losses, and of course, competition for energy. I have my friend sitting here. <laughs> Goldman Sachs was involved in the Verizon Sinoc by you know, Unicom, <laughs> which was thwarted by uh, you know, uh, un unexpected forces. <laughs> <laughs> so all this you know, mean that, um, you know, I think, the, first of all, the, what's happening in China is really uh, breathtaking. China is industrializing, urbanizing, and globalizing all at the same time and extremely fast pace. And uh, the rise of China is clearly going to have, uh, continue to have a tremendous impact uh, for the rest of the world. Thanks very much. Thanks, Fred. Um, there are so many myths of, about China that uh, are, are prevalent in this country. Uh, Fred alluded to some others about which I would be interested in. People think of China, it's not just pe peasants, but very low wage workers. And yet wage rates in, in 
the fast developing sectors of China have been growing very rapidly, up at sometimes at 14% a year. Productivity is growing faster. And so they continue to export, but it is not a primitive economy that we are dealing with here. And, and, and when we start to understand that, perhaps we'll start to uh, adjust our vision and our policy. Um, Edgar, please. Well, uh, it's a pleasure to be with you this afternoon. Uh, I agree with Fred that uh, China is an, in, in, an industrial revolution, analogous perhaps to the late 1800s in the US, uh, the 50s in Japan, etc. China in the last two years accounted for about a third of the growth in demand for crude oil. Uh, about uh, emerging Asia and the Middle East together about 60% of the demand. Uh, the way we look at energy markets at Chevron and these price levels that you've been witnessing, and I understand David Victor spoke to you earlier about it. Uh, I wasn't in the room, so I, uh, uh, let me share with you some of my insights on where I think things are going and why, how they got here. Uh, I believe we experienced a shift in energy markets, especially in oil markets, in pricing from marginal supply pricing to marginal demand pricing in 2003 and 2004 especially. If you, look, if you think back between the 1990 and 2002, it was supply management was the issue. OPEC cheating, spare capacity was about three and a half million barrels a day. OPEC uh, uh, was trying to manage supply and three, three and a half million barrels a day of capacity today uh, would put prices at a much lower level than they are. In uh, the outward shift in the demand curve in, in 03, 04, ultimately led to uh, a stressing the supply chain in the world. Add to that what I call a perfect storm of geopolitical tensions. It's essentially a demand shock in the middle of geopolitical stress. Uh, the financial markets uh, first of all, $75 oil is not fundamental. If you talk to the high-cost producers in Canada, $45 is the marginal cost of production. The rest is paper market for the most part. Goldman Sachs is one of the culprits behind the price. The Goldman Sachs index uh, was, is very active and probably accounts, along with other indices, uh, for the de uh, uh, steep contango over the next three years in the market. Uh, where is demand today? It's, uh, uh, Tom asked me to talk about fundamentals, so I'll stick to demand and supply. Uh, it's about 1.1% growth today. Uh, we projected into the future at a rate of 1 to 1 1.5 million barrels a day. 1.5 million barrels a day is about 1.7% roughly. Uh, China is actually, as you have seen, uh, amply demonstrated earlier, uh, is a leading factor behind the commodity prices in general as well as commodity demand for energy and the competition in, for energy uh, around the world. Which brings me to the issue, now, before I move on to supply on the, on the demand side, uh, there are two is, uh, I would say developments that we should, uh, we should take notice of. One is geographic, is the shift of the demand, the tilt towards emerging Asia, the BRICS, 
Brazil, Russia, India, China. Uh, putting India and China, by the way, I, I need to introduce a, just a footnote on this. People always uh, uh, couple India and China in the same discussion. And I, I saw an, a, 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 a sentence that encapsulates the difference. Uh, India is not China and never will be. It's not a tiger. It's an elephant that began to lumber. It will never have speed, but will always have stamina. India is way behind China, and I fully agree with the presentation earlier on, the on where China is heading and could do for the next couple of decades at least what it's doing. Uh, on the, uh, what is a key driver of world demand is two things, mainly transportation and petrochemicals. And the alternatives in transportation on the demand side, basically technology is very limited. We're not, we're not there yet in terms of fuel cells or maybe hybrids are gaining some market share, but we're not there yet on the other alternatives. A more efficient internal combustion engine is perhaps still one of the key, uh, you know, aside from the alternative fuels, diesel, clean diesel, and others, alternative liquids, <coughs> which is still also uh, early in, in some respects. Uh, on the supply side, the industry... And as I said earlier, demand, the, the outward shift in the demand curve stressed the supply chain and created a, uh, the, a response in the markets by the industry and by OPEC. Uh, just as a reminder, OPEC has not invested uh, in its production facilities since the 70s. The industry went through a different stages of investment, uh, uh, just to put it in a... Uh, encapsulated fashion. In the 70s, we were kicked out. In the 80s, we developed non-OPEC. In the 90s, we didn't believe in demand and went after each other. So uh, the bottom line is the investments in the 90s were about $15 billion annually lower than the 80s, if you look at it in relative terms. The industry now is investing. Chevron's investment plan is about $20 billion. We're investing pretty much everything we're making. In now, but the response is delayed, and that's the crux of the matter in energy markets today. It's delayed by resource nationalism, which China faces as well as we do, uh, access to acreage uh, to grow uh, the traditional, the conventional stuff, cost on the service side, that it, the cost is tremendous. It's, I, I would venture to say that the service industry is almost like a cartel now. And the reason it is, is because we can pay. So it's like buying gasoline in an expensive rich neighborhood. We can pay, therefore it's higher. And the costs are tremendously higher, massive costs. If any of you recalls the uh, substantial fine by Chevron, Devon, and Statoil in the Jack, find in the Gulf of Mexico, 27,000 feet, 7,000 below water, 20,000 below the 7,000, $100 million is the cost, to give you an idea what the industry faces to respond on the supply, on the supply side. Resource nationalism blocks investment. It creates uh, uh, several issues for the industry. It is, first of all, access is limited, royalties are up, taxes are up. Russia is a good example. Chavez is another. That uh, means you, the negotiated uh, deals are at a, in a different realm altogether, cost-wise as well as politically. 
the industry is now facing joint, J, joint ventures with governments. Now, it's a lot easier for China to go into uh, a government deal as opposed to a company going into a government deal. It's very different. Government to government is very different from company to government. Uh, the uh, resource nationalism is an important feature right now in the in world energy, and we face it every day. Sovereign oil uh, upstream in Saudi Arabia will never be open under the current generation. So access to if you draw an ellipse around from Russia to West Africa, I call it the ellipse of plenty. That's the convention we we use at Chevron, and in that ellipse is where it's all at. In that ellipse is also we face all the difficulties, the cost, uh, the tremendous uh, uh, obstacles and hurdles that we have to cross in order to respond to a growing demand and growing world population as well as a growing world economy, which uh, is another uh, discussion altogether. So uh, Tom asked me to speak for five minutes only, so... <laughs> Uh, I have a minute or two maybe left. Uh, what is the outlook? I believe the industry will respond. By 2010, uh, OPEC's spare capacity, which is a key component in, as a price-determining factor in the market, the observed spare capacity, meaning the, uh, the, in, the perception of spare capacity is what counts. Right now, it's supposed to be 3 million barrels a day. I happen to think it's the usable part is about 2 and mostly in Saudi Arabia, about a million. Uh, that is supposed to grow uh, substantially to, uh, it's 3.4 percent roughly, but it will grow to 3 million barrels a day by 2010, perhaps. If OPEC cuts its production as promised recently, that will add to spare capacity. Spare capacity is very important to price determination. As I mentioned, if you recall, in the 90s, we had 3.5 million barrels a day of spare capacity. Average price between 1990 and 2002 was $21. I believe we can get $35 oil at 3.5 to 4 million barrels a day of spare capacity. That's quite substantial. And that's not going to happen that easily. Uh, there are a number of projects coming on stream in non-OPEC, uh, about 117 projects that I can account for. But that's just the plan. The, the deferrals, delays, they don't happen on time. So the leads and lags in the industry are tremendous in that sense. You, the, we are expecting a bulge in non-OPEC in terms of supply, but it's going to be less of a bulge than the numbers indicate. As usual, the, uh, it's just planned additions. It's not the same thing as when it comes on stream. So uh, we're facing... Two, I will leave you with one thought, or two thoughts. One is the overarching strategies for the industry is to figure out geopolitics for access while positioning for the coming age of manufacturing of energy. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay, lots of questions promised. Great. Again. Um, Mr. Habib, uh, I would like to ask this question. Um, I have a very close friend who wrote a book a year or two ago that created a stir in the oil industry. Uh, he was an investment banker in Houston, Matt Simmons. Um, and his thesis is uh, that Saudi Arabia is going to, within the 
reasonable few years reach a peak and will now go down a down curve in terms of production. Um, and I understand it's kind of controversial. Uh, people, a lot of people don't agree with that. But what would you say concerning that? Matt Simmons is a banker. That's what I said. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Uh, I believe reserve numbers in general. I, I'm not going to comment on Matt's work alone. In there is a peak oil anxiety in oil markets today. I didn't address it as part of the supply, but I could right now very briefly. <clears throat> I call it peak oil anxiety because I'm not sure anybody really knows. It's a bunch of numbers about this from the same database which is the uh, IHS database, one database primarily. Every analyst uses the same database and you arrive at the same conclusions if you use the same database. Uh, it's, not, it's, it's a mathematical exercise <coughs> estimating from what reserve base, if we do three, 3 trillion a la USGS, you, we have consumed a trillion, we may have 2 trillion left, uh, it depends on how you define these things, so I, we, it's a quagmire to figure out what's in the ground. Uh, we believe that the, it's not the end of oil, it's the end of, of easy oil. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the deliverability issue of the difficult oil is what's at stake, I believe. Uh, access issues are, are an issue. Resource nationalism are an issue. Above ground risks right now, I would say to some degree supersede below ground risks, reservoir risks. Now, to come to Saudi Arabia, having said this general statement, uh, Saudi Arabia's reserves are about what? 260 billion, something like that. 260 billion bars admitted. Take out 100 billion. They still have 160 billion. I think you can discount, in, in what I'm trying to say to Matt Simmons and others is, yes, the reserve numbers are political numbers, but if you take out a chunk of, you know, discount 80 to 100 billion out of the Saudi reserve, you still have a hefty sum. Saudi Arabia is still a player. They can go up in production up to about 15 million barrels a day. Whether they do it or not has to do with the social cost that they have to incur. Saudi Arabia is a single commodity economy. That means they derive national income from export receipts. Almost, even though they don't admit it that way in SAMA reports, they're about 96, 95% of national income comes from export receipts. They don't produce much else. They produce, even they sell eggs to Sudan and all that. They have silos, they buy more silos so they have more grain production, they say. I mean, they say other things, but. It's, it's oil exports and now gas uh, initiative. Uh, as a single commodity economy, that means when you derive your national income from one single commodity, that commodity has to be, has to be preserved for future generations. You have to account for a pop You have to deliver, basically, jobs to a population growing at 35 to 4%, skewed to the under 20. Tremendous population growth. Uh, the government cannot be employer of, uh, uh, par excellence anymore. They have to. Now they can afford it, so they can buy loyalties and provide services and, and support, you know, subsidies and all that. But the kingdom, is uh, its development process happens entirely in, uh, on imports, depends on imports. Everything is imported, pretty much. 
So imagine the difficulty of managing what to produce today, how much to invest. They have to make a decision the same way a corporation has, in a way. Think about it. They have to decide, do I produce right now another million barrels a day, which infrastructure-wise will cost billions of dollars. The most expensive thing is to add one more, billion, one more million barrels a day extra for infrastructure alone is tremendous. So they have to decide uh, if demand is going to be there. Of course, they're the residual suppliers, but at the same time, they have to answer to the Ministry of Finance, even though oil is the golden commodity. The Ministry of Finance has to respond and say, we have the budget. They basically compete for budgets for the national economy. So it's a complicated social cost, social decisions. Oil policy and social policy are, are related. It's not a matter of unlimited resources. You know, I, I would question the reserves, you know, 260 billion, 300 billion. It's, take some of that out. That's okay. that, uh, to me, that's reasonable. But I'm not sure about Twilight in the Desert yet. Again, Matt Simmons is a banker. Fred, I just wanted to ask you as we go through, uh, and then I'll come to Howard's question. Um, how does the Chinese government look at these questions of energy price uh, increases and the end of easy oil and, and, and its, own, uh, its own concerns for the, uh, acquiring a supply that's necessary to feed this growth that you've described to us? Right. Isn't the, uh, the leadership um, obviously looks at the energy question very, very closely, but they're less concerned about the uh, run-up in prices than securing the supply itself. In other words, even though the, you know oil price has risen from like twenty-eight dollar per barrel to now, you know maybe at peak eighty now come back a little bit. Uh, China has the ability to finance the imports because China is a very competitive export economy, a very strong you know balance payments position and massive fox reserves. So they have no difficulty uh, financing the imports of oil. Um, what they are worried about, however, is that the, you know all the factors that I think Mr. Habib talked about, you know, geopolitics and the other factors, there may be not enough in the supply to uh, to fuel the industrial machine uh, and also urbanization. You know, as many more and more Chinese are, are driving, you know, instead of riding bicycles. So that's the the concern. Of course, you know, part of the solution, I mean, what have people have focused on in this country is more, like, you know. China's activity in Sudan or Nigeria mm. or in Kazakhstan. But in fact, the big part of the energy strategy is more to find a way to, diverse, to diversify uh, energy instead of you know, purely relying on fossil energy, particularly imported fossil energy. Maybe, you know, like nuclear power, for example, the serious um, policy commitment uh, to the development of nuclear power. And uh, you know, billions of US dollars have been earmarked for uh, building more nuclear stations. Hydroelectric is another example. You know, the controversial three Gorge Dam, which clearly is um, very, very expensive, not just for the uh, direct cost, but also in terms of the unforeseen ecological, environmental impact. But the leadership failed to have no choice, given you know the downstream Yangtze provinces are the most industrialized, but then they're the most energy you know uh, short, you know, so need to have hydroelectric power. And uh, you know, in in the Mongolia, you know, wind power, and uh, there's also kind of you know early stage investment into like solar and you know biomass and so on and so forth. So 
the game plan certainly over medium long term is really to have much more diverse diverse uh, energy uh, consumption uh, strategy, not exactly replicating what's you know uh, happening in this country, which uh, China now increasingly considers luxury, a luxury China cannot afford to have. Howard. resource diplomacy if the Chinese government believes that securing access to raw materials, whether it's oil or gas or iron ore or coal, is not driven by I can get it cheaper by doing a deal with Sudan or by doing a deal with Nigeria, probably isn't driven by diversity of supply because these are all fungible materials traded on international markets. So. If you want to diversify your supply, you buy your LNG from four countries, not just from Malaysia. So the, the answer that, that seems to emerge is, well, somehow this assures me greater security of supply. And, and is this physical security? Is it economic security? If the oil price goes up, and even if I don't physically get everything and I have to pay more for it, at least I'm taking more producer profit? Or alternatively, is there a belief contrary to the IEA sharing agreements, which I don't know if China signed or not, but is there a belief that in a physical shortage of supply, China, because of these deals with people like Sudan or Nigeria, could actually physically assure themselves a disproportionate share of whatever supplies are available, which is not the way the IEA agreements are written. Yeah, I would uh, agree with that. Yeah, I you know, the diversification, obviously, you know, I, I was more talking about like, the diversification of different, uh, you know, energy sources. Uh, obviously, there's also a component of geographical uh, diversification. You know, you mentioned the natural gas is a very good example. Um, actually, I have the, you know, Australian government, you know, in terms of John Howard's government, in terms of uh, signing the first uh, 25-year long-term LNG uh, supply to China. You know, actually, Australia wasn't the most price competitive. You know, Qatar and Indonesia uh, were more competitive in terms of price, but in, in the, the government uh, chose Australia, mainly because you know Australia's democracy, you know, politically more stable, <laughs> not the Muslim country. So China felt more secure to have this 25-year you know uh, supply contract. So that's one component of that. But also, you know, again, come back to geopolitics. You know, I, I think this um, this you know Sunak Unica episode, you know, just unfortunately sent a kind of wrong signal. To part of the Chinese policymakers, the the sort of I still believe Iranians concluded part of the you know, U.S. government, maybe you know the right wing Republican <coughs> elements of the U.S. government uh, are determined to contain China, you know, in part by denial, uh, you know, energy. So, so I think some kind of wrong signal may, at the margin, heightened the concern somewhat. But generally, you know, as you point out, China has been basically participating. Global market, you know, through <coughs> price taker, you know, through you know, whether it's uh, crude oil or natural gas, you know, pay all the you know, market prices. So, um, in terms of dealing with the Sudan and uh, Nigeria, it's not because it's cheaper; it's because it's kind of untapped, you know, reserve China could, uh, you know, going everywhere else, uh, you know, basically China couldn't beat the uh, those uh, assets, you know, in Sudan and Nigeria. Probably they have um, easier time to get those assets. You know, it's, it's interesting. I want to come back to something uh, that, that Edgar said a moment ago in response to the question, because Edgar said it's different to have government-to-government -government relationships than government-to-company relationships. 
And so I, I wanted to ask you, so that if, if, if China National Petroleum Company, which is a state company, and thereby in some sense perhaps equivalent to the government, uh, is, the, is the, uh, the investor in a country, is it your sense that they can uh, bring various political pressures to secure supply that otherwise would be unavailable to them in a purely commodified market? Is that the strategy? Or I think this is a good question for Fred. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can tell you how I feel about it. But I, sure, please. I, but I think you might want to answer from China's regard, uh, point of view. I, uh, I, it, the playing field would not be level if you're competing with governments. That's all I'm going to say. It's not the same. It's not a level playing field. And that adds a dimension. Having a government behind the company adds a different dimension to uh, irrespective of how it appeared in the U.S. regarding the Unical deal. Uh, uh, oil companies and the U.S. oil companies don't have anywhere close to the relationship other companies have. We, we have access to Washington. We, have, we don't have power in Washington. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. You know, the petroleum market is kind of peculiar market. You know, it's um, obviously influenced by the forces of demand and supply, but also you know it's um, either heavily regulated or like cartelized market. You know, the OPEC example. That's you know, it's, it's it's a cartel. So you know, the government everywhere inevitably has huge influence over the uh, industry, whether it's on the supply production side or on the consumption side, for example through subsidies, which has the ubiquitous in many, many countries, both developing and developed economies. Um, in case of specifically on CNPC, CNPC, yes, it's a state-owned um, you know, company, as most of the companies used to be. You know. But uh, what I didn't mention in my opening remarks is that you know, we talk about industrialization, urbanization, and the globalization. But also there's a parallel process going on, which is privatization. You know, in 1978, when they came back to power, launched the economic reform, the vast Chinese economy was controlled, owned by the state. I would say 95% of GDP, easily, if not more. Today, if you look at the World Bank estimate, purely state-owned sector accounts for less than a quarter of the national GDP. So look at this measure. China is uh, less socialist than, say, France. Now, CNPC is a state-owned company, but the main subsidiary, PetroChina, <coughs> is NYSE list company. <coughs> World government still has a controlling stake, for sure. But uh, PetroChina has a board. It's, you know, I said NYSE has, has to be in compliance with the sub, you know, accident, okay? And many, many institutional investors, including Capus uh, and Warren Buffett, uh, and PetroChina, since the privatization in 2000, uh, early 2000, by and large, has been behaved like really, you know, like Chevron, not too different in terms of it's a profit-seeking commercial enterprise. Their goal is to maximize profits. And uh, so today, PetroChina is the single large, single most valuable company in Asia, Japan included. And that's because investors, global investors, including many in the U.S., as it including Capus, have become a lot more comfortable with the Petro China, the way 
you know, corporate governance, the transparency, and the focus on commercial bottom line, as opposed to being, you know, following the government policies. So, you know, government ownership is still is still a fact that they have to deal with. But uh, you know, what I'm trying to point out is that this is increasingly become a commercial enterprise. Other questions, please. Um, Mr. Hu, how is the Chinese government responding to the not too distant eventuality of carbon constraints, in particular to the extent that the that China is building a lot of new coal-fired power plants? Are they looking to institute technologies that will diminish carbon output because a traditional carbon, uh, a traditional coal-fired power plant lasts 60 years? If they build the old technology, they'll be stuck with it for a long time. So. How is the government responding to that? Yeah, in, in, in your view? <laughs> good question. And this is uh, again uh, related to the logic discussion of like you know uh, oil and uh, you know natural gas, because China doesn't have abundant you know reserve uh, or domestic supply in uh, in oil and gas. So what China you know has abundant supply is really coal, and coal, as we know, at least traditional way of consuming coal is very polluting, and there's a major source of uh, green house um, emission. And China has already seen the uh, harmful uh, you know, impact, you know, air pollution, water pollution, uh, as rain, all you know, related to uh, you know, the burning of coal, which still supplies uh, over 95% of the, uh, you know, the primary energy in China is, uh, is, is primarily coal. And the coal, because abundant supply, so arguably cheaper. So for the foreseeable future, you know, China would have no choice but to rely on coal, but the, in the face of rising, you know, clear uh, cost to the environment and also, you know, the, the, the uh, emission, um, the government is also focused on using like late, you know, better technology to increase the efficiency, you know, better conserve energy, but also, you know, now focus on uh, extracting like, you know, liquefied coal, so have a cleaner way of, uh, you know, putting uh, coal to generate the uh, electricity or other source of energy. So there's a big, great deal of uh, focus, um, but the, the real impact, you know, can only be assessed, I guess, uh, much uh, further down the road. You know, um, we'll look back maybe hopefully uh, five years, ten years from now, we'll see some, um, you know, significant improvement. But for for the, for the time being, I'm still very concerned, you know, about the uh, emission. It's 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 an interesting problem in which we've been doing a lot of work. There is a lot of regional differentiation because as incomes come up in some parts of China, people become very concerned about the local pollution effects, if not the carbon constraints, and that often has a an impact on, on carbon constraints depending on what's done. Um, we visited recently a plant outside of Shanghai. David had a picture up at the at the end of his uh, at the end of his presentation. Uh, this is a plant that's unmatched in the United States in terms of efficiency. Coal prices are rising, too, not as fast as gas or oil prices, but it's a commodity, and um, it's been going up. Um, the, the, the ability to build plants of higher efficiency is something the Chinese are extremely interested in and is certainly appearing. And I'll just turn. Stu Dalton is in the room, who's uh, from EPRI, Electric Power Research Institute. You were just in China looking at, uh, at gasification that David mentioned earlier. Would you? Uh, it's actually, I was there talking about those superficial plants at a symposium on ultra-supercritical plants that was held by the Chinese. And indeed, they're building them faster than we are in this 
the country. Of course, we have been building gas plants in this country for the last decade. We're just now getting back into the business. But uh, the Chinese will put in place, as you said, world-class supercritical plants. And talking about steel, they were talking about, I think it translated out as homemade, very sophisticated steels that previously had come from Japan. But they're now looking at uh, doing the word they, they translated was homemade. But these are not just homemade. These are very sophisticated technologies. They're applying. They're also applying a lot of pollution control. I missed my flight from Beijing because I couldn't get out, of, get out of Qingdao because the airport was shut down for a couple of hours. And I could tell this was not an ordinary fog <laughs> that shut it down for a couple of hours. And I've been there a number of times. Yet, but they are making rapid progress. They're also not shutting down the old plants. They're, and to this uh, comment on carbon, they're much more seriously looking at what are the possibilities. I was over talking uh, with one of the companies that's looking at major, making a major commitment to a very large scale uh, gasification carbon capture plant mm -hmm. called GreenGen, uh, or Green GEN. It's like the US FutureGen project. Mm -hmm like the Australian zero-gen project that looks at gasifying and capturing the carbon and sequestering. So there are some uh, indications that they're looking at the technologies. When will they do it? I think that's back to the economists, not to the engineers, uh, to answer that question. I think these are very, one of the really interesting phenomena that, that you start to observe in China when you get down on the ground is that if they're building 70 gigawatts, and nobody knows exactly how many because a lot of it is is is, uh, is is not going through an approval process. I would say probably 40 to 45 of those gigawatts are being built by state companies at very high quality. And I would say 25 to 30 are being built by everybody and his cousin. Some of it using oil, some of it using very primitive coal technologies. So you have a very, very bimodal impact on the system, but it is a coal-driven system. David. A question, I'm mindful of time, but a question to both Fred and Edgar about risk. Um, we hear about the overhang of the debt and the Chinese banking reform. Uh, we hear about the pensions, we hear about the problems with infrastructure and just keeping pace with the enormous demand. In, in your views, what are the biggest risks to the Chinese economy uh, and its ability to keep in this, this pace of, of growth up? You know, we've interpreted this. Um dramatic transformation of the Chinese economy, whether it's industrialization, urbanization, you know, those are many buckling, you know, process of change in terms of size, in terms of, you know, scale, scope, and the speed. So, you know, if you look at the human history of last, you know, since the first industrial revolution, you know, now trans transition is easy uh, or, or painless. Uh, it's also flooded with the major uncertainties or uh, social turmoil and, you know, political instability. Um, you know, so 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 the while you know we are kind of excited by what's going on in the country, you know, tremendous growth, the uh, rapid reduction in uh, poverty, you know, the increase in uh, living standards, and all and all those possible changes, but also you know there are really a broad array of risks uh, confronting uh, uh, China. In fact, some of what came up in this uh, panel and uh, you know in, in the rest of the uh, program in this conference. You know, certainly energy, you know, <laughs> security and environmental, how to contain the cost of the environment as China rapidly industrialized and urbanized. You know, it's clearly a, a big challenge. Um, 
you know, the second one, you know, I think you mentioned the banking, you know, if we asked, had asked me the question three years ago, what would be the single biggest risk for China, I would say the banking sector. Now, no longer, I'm much more comfortable with what has happened to the banking sector over the last three years. The government, again, has confronted the problem head on, has, you know, bet the body, you know, taken major actions to uh, restructure and uh, rehabilitate the banking sector. So this year, I myself, I've been very closely involved in Bank of China and the ICBC. These are happen to be the two largest IPOs ever in history, in the history of global capital markets. You know, 21 billion US dollar IPO of ICBC, the largest ever. You know, for that to be successful, for the, the largest state on the bank in China to <coughs> pull, you know, IPO of 21 billion US dollars, is no small fee. That really shows the investors, both domestic and international, have really become a lot more comfortable with owning Chinese in a bank because there's been significant change in everything. You know, in terms of asset quality, in terms of risk management, in terms of IT infrastructure, all that. You know, there's been a sea change. So, banking sector, uh, you know, I don't think it's a major risk. Although there's ongoing uh, reform efforts that need to be made uh, for them to ha really have world class. Uh, efficient the banking system. Um, but um, you know, this one thing is more like social political, uh, you know, related to what Tom's uh, opening uh, remarks, you know, how is it possible to a you know, country without the rule of law to you know to sustain this kind of rapid change or progress. Um, I do think the rule of law uh, is gonna be increasingly important because the economy is much more global, much more sophisticated, increasingly more sophisticated. So at the cause for protection of property rights on our commercial contracts and uh, including you know, intellectual property rights. Uh, so that's going to be very, very important. And then you know, how to uh, combat uh, endemic corruption, which I think is a major, major challenge. Um, I can easily see China can maybe okay for China to have one party uh, rule state system uh, for another 25 years to still achieve very rapid economic growth. But that's only if they can manage to do something about the, uh, you know, in debt, in corruption, uh, because that's more than, you know, the rural income, uh, rural urban income disparity, uh, you know, that's going to be proven to be socially explosive, um, in terms of you know, instability, and uh, at this stage of economic development, I would argue, part more than rule of law, social predictability is of paramount importance. In fact, I may cite uh, academic research. Robert Barrow, a former you know, colleague of mine at Harvard, this empirical study about the relationship of economic growth and democracy. His conclusion is that democracy, at the most, is irrelevant to growth, or in some cases, is negative in a correlation, because democracy, as we know, tends to be associated with the populism. So, so government, democratic government, tend to move, use income you know, policies, you know, higher taxation or income distribution at the expense of efficiency or economic growth. So, but then he found, which I think is also supported by a lot of historical uh, you know, experience, social and political stability is very, very important for economic growth. So, so that means that if in the next 25 years, if China can maintain the kind of social and political stability it has by and large enjoyed for the last 25 years, you know, economic growth would continue. However, that you know they have to do something really about the corruption. Iker, we're we're 
running over time. People have, um, have other things that then we're going to wrap it up, but I wondered whether you want either on this question or something else, just take a final word and... Uh, final word, a few, two words, three words. Uh, I con concur on the Chinese domestic regarding this question. Uh, that the social cost of development is the biggest issue. Uh, since uh, Fred covered it so nicely internally, I think the threat to, we, I look at the world in terms of it, not quite a division of labor, but we consume they produce type relationship. There is a symbiosis between China and the United States that's animating the world economy today, and I think the threat to the Chinese export economy right now is protectionism. Uh, that could emerge. Yes. And that's an issue that, uh, a host of issues on the domestic side that's covered. But protectionism is an issue that could undermine the system, the symbiosis that I think is animating world growth in the vicinity of 4.9% according to the IMF. Thank you. Thanks. Um, I, I'm going to close. I want to just reiterate in closing one point that, that, that David Victor made earlier, which is something that uh, uh, I think is, is a consequence of what is going on between China and markets, commodity markets more generally, um, and, and I would say even more broadly between Asian growth and commodity markets, because at the margin they are driving prices um, around the world that we're feeling here. But I think one of the most interesting things in a lot of parts of the world, I'll take Latin America where I, I lived a long time as an example, Commodity-driven growth is actually having a high impact on national incomes. This is true in Brazil, it's true in Argentina, it's <coughs> certainly true in Venezuela. I think one of the most interesting questions that we have before us that, that really no one has focused on yet is what are the consequences for governance, for democracy, if you will, for markets of having commodity-driven growth? We all have a sense of manufacturing-driven growth, whether it's in Japan or the U.S. or somewhere else ultimately leads us to democratization and markets. Um, and I think that creates a certain optimism about China. Commodity-driven growth may be a very, very different activity. We see this in Iran. We see it in Venezuela. I think we even see it in Brazil to some degree. And so I think there are a series of consequences that we have to worry about that we haven't focused on yet because for so long commodity prices have been seen as in decline relative to other prices. That's no longer true, and I think there are governance issues that will be with us for some time about the nature of this growth, which may go to resource nationalism and some of the other questions that, uh, that have been addressed. I want to thank both you gentlemen very much. I want to thank the audience. We've barely scratched the surface, uh, but uh, I look forward to many more opportunities to interact with you on these questions. Thank you. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.